Talk Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, it is playoff time, so we got to do a quick review of an eventful race out in Las Vegas. Kyle Busch shared his opinion on, quote, winless late model drivers, and that got us thinking. Plus, our preview for the short track in Richmond. But first, come on, as always, this is episode 35 of Positive Regression. This is the Todd Bodine edition. David, we, we just have something, an affinity for 90s uh, paint schemes, right? And Todd Bodine had one of those. Todd Bodine had a lengthy career across NASCAR's top national series, but in 1997, he debuted the number 35 Tabasco hot sauce car. And man, it was a memorable paint scheme. It was. It was probably the best die cast that he ever had in his career, but also the most forgettable ride he had. So simultaneous in uh, other uh, opposite ends of the spectrum there. But let's talk about Todd first before we get into the Tabasco team. Todd Bodine, as a 38-year-old in the NASCAR Cup Series, ranked 24th in production and equal equipment rating with a 0.875 rating. He ranked ahead of guys like Elliot Sadler, Joe Nemechek, Robbie Gordon, Jimmy Spencer, Greg Biffle, and Jeremy Mayfield, all of whom I think are held in higher regard for their Cup Series efforts than Bodine. It feels like we've been on this streak lately of talking about late bloomers, and Todd Bodine was certainly one of those. His peak was kind of the beginning for him. At age 40, he paired with Jermaine Racing in the Truck Series uh, and uh, the Hillmans, and their first race out, a second-place finish uh, in the team's first race together, a win in their second race together at Fontana at all places. Uh, you need a serious truck for a win at that kind of track. 22 victories in the truck series, all in after age 40. Uh, but Allen, his, uh, his 2010 season, his second of his two championships at age 46, he scored a 3.920 peer. Wow. His best season's worth of production right there. I think that was the, uh, the crown jewel season for Mr. Bodine. Yeah, he won 10% of his uh, truck starts, a, a 10% winning percentage, which I think is pretty good in racing. So yeah, uh, that's pretty damn good. And to do it with a team that just didn't exist prior to him joining it, I mean, that they really created something formidable that last for a decade plus uh, in, in the truck series. It was uh, good to see Jermaine. They're now in the Cup Series, uh, totally focused on that. But it all began with Todd Bodine and the Hillmans and – uh, going truck racing back in uh, when Todd Bodine was a 46-year-old. Nice. And even before that, I remember him as a rookie in the Factory Stores of America car, the number 75 in 1994. I thought that was a great ride. Obviously, knowing the Bodines and all the family history to have another one come along. But then uh, a few years in, a bit, bit of a journeyman career early on, and then he goes in that Tabasco car. And David, it's another one of those mind things that Absolutely, I remember the Tabasco car. It must have been a, a few full seasons, right? It, it, was, it, it, it was a short, short stint of the Tabasco car, yet we remember it so well. Tabasco's foray was terrible. They they missed the first three races of the 1998 season, and that probably sounds worse than it is because different era – the 98 season was stacked that year. The 35 car didn't have any points from the previous season and entered a, uh, a Daytona 500 that year that sent home guys like Johnny Benson in a Roush car, Wally Dallenbach in a Felix Sabatis car, and Hut Strickland in a Stavola Brothers car. And all of those are established teams that didn't make the 500. 
when he did finally make a race, Alan, he qualified second and finished 10th at Atlanta. But after that, he never finished better than 27th. He was fired after the first Pocono race of the year, which by all accounts miffed Tabasco because they (laughs) used Todd Bodine in all of their in-store marketing materials for the year. Uh, Shortly after they parted with Bodine. The team sold to Tim Beverly, and that team put Daryl Waldrop in the car for the remainder of the season. But uh, I think it, it was already uh, too much had been soured. Tabasco left after 1998. So much for their weird-tasting hot sauce and their relationship with NASCAR, uh, alas. But it left a good memory. So <laughs> it left it a did, lasting and, and, memory and a good diecast. And yes, and the, and and there were multiple paint schemes. You remember the all black with the green oh, trim yeah. that showed up? Oh yeah, they they had it. They they had their marketing down pat. Unfortunately, they paid no attention to the uh, level of competitiveness offered <laughs> by this race team. Uh, and unfortunately, Todd Bodine just got caught up in that. I think it was a weird scenario all the way around. Uh, but. Probably Todd Bodine's most famous diecast of all time. Long live racing champions. There, there you go, all racing champions. I love it. Yeah, Todd Bodine, 25 plus year career at NASCAR's, uh, you know, three top levels, including the two truck titles. Obviously still contributing to the sport over on FS1, my teammate right now over on the truck series. The Onion, and, and a great name, a great nickname, and a great family over there. So, uh, episode 35. This is the Todd Bodine edition of Positive Regression. Let's start out now that we are in playoff mode in the Cup Series. Let's do a quick five-minute review of what we saw in Vegas because all of these races now take on a different new meaning. Uh, a win means a lot more than it used to, and having trouble certainly means a lot more than it, it, it certainly used to, in, at least in the regular season, because it can put you in a big hole. Martin Truex Jr., David, won the race. Let's talk about how he won the race because he started in the back of the pack and by stage two, he was winning. And then with 20 laps to go, he was blown by Kevin Harvick like he was standing still, kind of sending a statement. How did Martin Truex Jr. win this race, David? Yeah, I think qualifying so deep in the field, 24th, really threw people off guard. But Alan, when Cole Pern disregarded trimming his car out for qualifying, he made his bet. If this race looked as it did last year with 12 cautions, they would be done for. And that's even considering how strong Truex is on restarts. He's the top preferred groove restarter in the series right now. If this race skewed caution free like it did in the spring, they'd be in good shape. And that is exactly what happened. Mind you, Martin Truex and Cole Pern, albeit for Furniture Row Racing, had the fastest car in the race last year. But its strength in that race was long runs, not short runs. And a race with 12 cautions doesn't break in the favor of those with heavy long run speed. I'm, I don't know anything. I'm just going to guess. Cole Pern brought a setup with a similar focus. Again, Truex had the fastest car in the race and most importantly, the fastest in the fourth and final quarter of the race. And that fourth quarter speed obviously helped set up the winning pass. Uh, he drove right by Kevin Harvick on the outside. And, you know, sometimes Kevin Harvick after a race, be, you know, finishing second where you lead a bunch of laps, you know, post race, it can be a, a tough interview. Kevin Harvick's a competitor. Obviously he wants to go out there and win. Bob Pockers, my teammate, uh, interviewed Kevin Harvick after the race. And obviously while he wasn't happy, Harvick was finishing second, uh, he was okay in terms of the weekend that they had and just kind of acknowledging 
that they didn't have the same speed nor setup at the end of that race that Martin Truex Jr. did because Truex blew by him on the outside with 20 to go. And what did you think of that last pass? Well, I think that there was a lot that went into it. So Harvick was leading Truex when they both pitted under green on lap 229. And it wasn't until lap 245, Truex did a lot of work to make this pass happen. He worked the high line in the corners first and actually lost ground despite having the faster car. The very next lap, it was lap 246, Truex dipped low about a half groove away from the white line. But then Harvick moved up. He opened the door for Truex in the corners who held steady down the straightaway. And at that point, it was over. There was no jostling involved, just forcing Harvick to perhaps overthink the situation a little. From where I sat, Harvick should have held the low line he was running, which tells me he might have just been fighting his handling at that point, trying to keep Truex behind him. And once Truex cleared Harvick, you said it like he was standing still. Alan, the interval was nearly one second after two laps. So that right there tells you how fast Truex was in the closing laps of this race. And still, it took either some head games or forcing Harvick into a little bit of discomfort in order to complete that pass. Truex said on his team radio early in the race that he felt as if his car needed to be adjusted tighter than usual because he felt Harvick waxed him on the short run so bad that it was too much ground to gain on the long runs. Well, that correction was made because Cole Pern <laughs> nailed the adjustment on their final stop. The winning pass took place 16 laps into the run. If you want to argue that's a short run, fine. You want to argue it's a long run, fine. But beyond that, 22 laps where Truex uh, just thumped Harvick and the rest of the field, and that was that was a relentless pace he had. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, Joey Logano going by Truex at Martin at Homestead last year. Just uh, one, good night, Irene, right after the pass, right? Because I think <laughs> Truex won by four seconds <laughs> on Sunday in Las Vegas, so it was a heck of a win. Um, you noticed something, David, in this Las Vegas race, the first playoff race, uh, something out of the ordinary. And I'm curious to, to know what it was that you saw now that the playoffs are here. What did we see in Sunday's race at Las Vegas? Yeah, I don't think there was any one big thing, but there were a few small things. I caught on those. Like Chad Knauss doing a two-tire-only green flag stop as a way to keep William Byron elevated in the running order after his spin. I think if if they had had a less dramatic race, that might not have been the call because we talked last week about the lack of gambles uh, that were going to be available in that race, but we saw some two-tire calls, and I think that wasn't necessarily out of desperation. I think that was just trying to salvage something. Kevin Harvick being the only quote-unquote trimmed-out car with decent long-run speed. That's interesting because I think that's something we need to keep in our head as we move closer to Homestead. In that race, it's either going to have to be a short-run car or a long-run car. If there is, by chance, a car that can do both, that is pretty dangerous. Uh, and lastly, the struggles of Kyle Busch, even before his contact late in the race with Garrett Smithley, all that was to salvage an already rough outing. Allen, he ranked 17th in central speed for the race. That is the worst he's ranked in speed for a single race since 
last year's playoff opener at Las mm-hmm. Vegas. So I don't want to say that there's something about this particular race, but uh man, that can't possibly be a coincidence, right? I wouldn't think so. That's interesting to hear because he was coming. Uh, he was making a hell of a comeback before he got into all the trouble with the lap traffic, which we'll talk about here in a second. But David, I mean, he was flying. I think he was, he had just reached the top five, if not fourth. And, uh, before he hit that trouble. So to hear he was so low on speed, uh, is quite interesting for the 18 car, especially in a playoff opener. And for a driver who is claiming that it's very difficult to pass. And look, when somebody says that, and he is one of the best passers the sport has to offer. There might be some truth in that, but the 18 team struggled, um, which is rare uh, from what we've seen all season. Even during their winless stretch, they were hitting peripheral numbers that suggested they are very good. And I don't know that this one race is a harbinger of things to come moving forward in the playoffs, but it was certainly a lost effort because that could have been a decent enough finish to keep that cushion padded that he brought with him from the regular season. Oh yeah. And we've, by this point in the week, we have seen the replays of the interview over and over again. So let's talk a little bit about Kyle Busch only because he is that championship favorite. You would have to believe, but at the end of the race in Las Vegas, if you didn't see, or if we just need to review in those closing laps, Kyle was on a tear, making a move through the field into the top five, but then he runs into lap traffic, both literally and figuratively. Bush ran into the back of Garrett Smithley, the replay that you've probably seen it many times at this point. You know, judge it for how you will, but he drove right into the back of uh, Garrett Smithley's bumper and then also had an apparent run-in with Joey Gase. After the race, Kyle commented, we've got guys out here who've never won a late model race, and, you know, we're racing at the top echelon of motorsports. Uh, first of all, the comments, David, I don't know. Look, Kyle Busch is obviously a very passionate driver. We interview them. We have the privilege, first of all, of interviewing them right out of the car when it was like a thousand degrees that day. Kyle Busch is someone who, you know, is not afraid to share his emotion when he's happy or when he's pissed off. So when you stick a microphone in his face, things might be said, especially if you made a mistake that cost yourself a good finish. Now, at the moment, he tried to blame it on the, the slower lap cars, I think it was more of a f- just frustration that maybe he made a mistake, an avoidable mistake. Uh, I think that's where the frustration come from, came from. That's just me talking. But let's talk about what he could have done differently, David, because a lot of people are diagnosing Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, right? I mean, William Byron got under the uh, lapped car. Other people got around the lap car. Kyle Busch drove right into the back of the 52. What could Kyle have done differently? I don't know if there is anything that he could have done differently. If it was as easy as following William Byron around Garrett Smithley, I assume he just would have done it. He claims he couldn't follow Byron because of the sensitivity of his car. To some degree, I believe that that is true. And the case in point is that you don't see cars lined up single file through corners all that much with this rules package. That tells me it's most likely something all drivers try to avoid doing. He was also told that Smidley was going to go high, and that's from his spotter channels. Bush was already turning right on the steering wheel, and his car didn't go anywhere, which means his back tires were already spinning, suggesting he had already tagged the brakes. And at that point, I think you're wrecked. Byron took an evasive maneuver around Smedley, and once he did, 
he left no escape route for Bush. Now, it's not on Byron to allow that room. So, you know, kudos to him. But I I do see how this whole thing could be placed squarely on Garrett Smidley. So hear me out here. What? Smidley was <laughs> Smidley was 12 laps down. He was running uh, 34 fives to 35 second lap times around this time. Kyle Busch was running 31 sevens, and the mile per hour difference is 170 to 154. That's pretty wow. sizable. Yeah. If, if you are in your own personal car, I'm sure everyone listening has had one of these experiences, <laughs> but a slow car in front of you, probably not where he should be, just sort of appears. This was one of those oh shit, oh shit, oh shit moments where you're stabbing at anything, hoping you braked early enough. You got to think about it. If you're 16 miles per hour off the pace, but you still want to be in the race while the actual race for the win is playing out around you, then this is a concession you have to make. You better not be in the way. And here, I think it's clear, Garrett Smithley is just hanging out in the middle of one of the busiest lanes in Las Vegas. He's right about one thing. He said on Twitter, he held his line. I can't deny that. He held his line like a champ. The problem was... It was in the midst of uh, one of the busiest lanes in a playoff race, and I can understand that frustration uh, more than a little bit. All right, and then well, and then on Twitter, uh, we'll have, maybe agree to disagree there, but I, I appreciate your points. Uh, one of after the race, after the comments on the flight home, thankfully Kyle Busch had some Wi-Fi and started entertaining the rest of the world uh, via Twitter responses. Uh, Corey LaJoy got in on it, but what, one of the points they brought up was awareness. Um, it's one thing to have a slow car and be out there and, you know, do your thing and race your race. We've been through it before. There are, there's different levels of racing throughout the field, if you will. Uh, the 52 still had plenty to race for, but there is a level of awareness that drivers can be judged on. Like, do you know what's going on right now? Do you realize you are 60 miles per hour slower and that the leaders are coming and that you're in a busy lane? Things like that. I don't know if we can, you know, if we should criticize Smithley specifically, but David, I know you came up doing um, scouting, you know, talent scouting at different levels. Is that one thing you can look at and see with drivers, no, no matter what the level, no matter what the equipment they have in terms of awareness? Is awareness on the track, is that quantifiable when you're watching drivers and scouting them? From a rudimentary level, yes. I think as technology grows and improves, um, we'll be able to pinpoint it a little bit better. You know, we can quantify crashing and we can quantify mistakes. And those are forms of lack of awareness. We need either qualitative input from other drivers or GPS location of slow cars cutting off viable grooves. And I think what Corey LaJoy is discussing is just kind of being in the wrong place at the right time. Uh, Alan, you don't watch much soccer, but there's a player named N'Golo Conte, and he mm -hmm. won a gold medal in the World Cup with France. He has been a Premier League champion for two different clubs, but analytics suggest he is the best in the world by a large margin in cutting off passing lanes just simply by being there, he positions himself well enough and smart enough to eliminate lanes and channels that otherwise would create setup for goals. 
So we're looking at the same thing in racing, right? But with the opposite designation, who cuts off the most valuable space on the track in an absent-minded manner? There's your awareness grade. I'm just going to need some GPS tracking to which I'm not privy. But if you're sitting in the stands watching the race, I think if, you know, even if you're a spotter, you should be able to spot something like this that's occurring regularly across an entire season, much less a single race. But it should be, if you're in the race, pretty easy to point out. I, I do veer back and say maybe there was some discussion that needed to happen between spotters about drivers occupying lanes or being utilized by playoff drivers and drivers that actually had something to gain at the end of this race. Let's talk about spotters a little bit because Kyle Larson also chimed in on this, uh, saying that the, you know, come race the chili bowl. He said something basically in, in as many words. Hey, Kyle Bush, come race the chili bowl. By the way, we don't have spotters and there's a hell of a lot more lap traffic, uh, during the chili bowl. Uh, we don't have spotters for the chili bowl, but so I don't want to, I mean, it's an odd question to say, are spotters necessary, David? But we know what role they play, but I mean, it, it, they don't have them in the dirt midgets. How necessary are they in the cup series? To me, I mean, the speeds they're going and how fast you have to process information, especially if there are slower cars out there. Uh, I, they seem for safety wise and just information wise, obviously they're necessary. But David, are you going to argue me on this one? Yeah, I think I am a little bit. No uh, spotter. I, Come on, man. <laughs> I, I Well, hold on. I, I think a spotter is like a, a cool box or, you know, just a, a shirt that keeps you cool. It, it's not necessary. It's just a good thing to have. Richard Petty and David Pearson combined for 301 victories without a spotter. Uh, I mean, sure, they probably would have liked them, but drivers are capable of clearing themselves, and some would be absolutely terrible at it. I think that would be something, if there were no spotters, more of a separator of driving talent. I'm being semi-serious when I say this, but if NASCAR is in the process of creating competition cautions for stage breaks and limiting horsepower so that cars are driving closer together then wouldn't removing spotters from the roof get NASCAR to more cautions and more restarts? Doesn't that, <laughs> does that, doesn't that hit the goal that you're already trying to achieve? I, I don't know. I, I, I do respect what good spotters bring. And I believe Kyle Bush has uh, a good spotter and Tony Hirschman. All of it is purely subjective based on what the driver prefers to hear in his ear. But there is good information being bandied on uh, on the team radio channels. And sometimes spotters are just bad. I mean, it, the, they are often the first thing a driver blames when they crash. I don't <laughs> think there's any, any coincidence in that. Nowadays, it's almost uh, come to be an expectation that spotters are supposed to be 100% accurate and very good. And that's just not the case. They're humans up there. They are fallible. And sometimes when you're playing the game of telephone, uh, as to uh, whether this driver is going to be in this lane. Sometimes the message gets lost, and that may have been what happened here. 
Yeah, and we'll, I'm sure we'll find out more and the discussion will continue, but I don't think we're ready to retire sponsors. I mean, <laughs> sponsors, uh, spotters just yet, but it is, it, it is a weird game and listening on the radio during the weeks, I encourage if you ever get to go to a race, you know, get a scanner, scan all the channels and listen to the different personalities and information. Some people talk a lot in terms of spotters. Some don't say much. Uh, some are just offering, you know, the door bumper clear, if you will, in terms of traffic. Others are offering the, um, a lot of information about different drivers and their grooves. So it is different. There, there's different levels of communication, different information that is being offered over the radio. And meanwhile, you hear it sometimes, but spotters are running back and forth. The 18 spotter may have been trying to talk with the 52 spotter at some point, asking them where they're going to be, what lane and all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on up there, and that can lead to either some confusion or can just lead to circumstances out of people's control. But I'm glad the spotters are still up there, David. <laughs> All right, enough about Las Vegas. Let's move on to Richmond and the short track, the first short track of this playoff race. Martin Truex Jr., quite safe because he has that victory and has already advanced to the next round. But plenty of drivers found trouble in Las Vegas and need to make something of a rebound. But let's start where we kind of always do every week in just the terms of the race, David, and what we need to be looking out for uh, we, we talked about restarts last week in Las Vegas and the preferred lines. What does it mean, the restarts, the trends for the short track at Richmond? Based on what we've come to expect, Richmond's two restart grooves are relatively even when everything is fleshed out. Through the first seven rows, the inside out retained the outside 69% to 55%. However, the first three rows in the spring race saw a lot of separation. The leader picked the inside line every time. That was correct. Uh, the leader retained every restart, 100% retention. Meanwhile, fourth place and sixth place, two spots in the outside line, retained on just 33% of restarts. Hmm. So if we see a late race dynamic, uh, it, it, it should be even deeper in the field, but those first few rows is where you can see some separation. Okay. Um, I expect to see Martin Truex Jr. up there because of how fast he's been and how good he is recently, especially at Richmond. Uh, first and third in the last two starts up there at Richmond, and he's moving up the speed charts in terms of being uh, the 19 team is fast in terms of central speed on the short tracks. What do you make of that? I mean, are we seeing a driver that could go out there and win the second race of the playoff already? Yeah, it's sort of amazing that he only holds one win at this venue. In his last six starts, he qualified six or better every time. He led 121 laps or more in five of those races. Three finishes of third or better, but also three finishes of 10th or worse. So, Alan, I'm curious to hear what you would do. Uh, he's already locked in to the next round, but his Richmond record precedes him, and he's arguably the best road course racer in NASCAR right now. So he's not, he's not worried about the upcoming Roval race. Do you go for the jugular these next two races to maximize the points you can carry with you, or does this team turn its attention to the second round of the playoffs? What do you do, Alan? No, I think we've learned every year that goes by with the playoff, I think we, we see it evolve even more and teams learn more about it. Uh, we're talking about a team, Martin Truex Jr., that has finished first and second at Homestead the last two years. I mean, this is a team and a core group that knows how to make it there, and I think they get there. 
by accumulating every single point possible. Obviously, every week you're trying to go out there and win the race. We know that. That's not what, that's not what I'm saying. But in terms of maximizing every stage point and now playing to that strategy where you can get those stage points, and we know he has the speed for the final stage. So if it does come down to one of those strategy calls where you can either, you know, plan for the end of the race or maximize your point situation in terms of stage points and stage wins, at a track like Richmond, David, I think Martin Truex can do both. And Cole Pern, that team can almost play for both. They have nothing to lose by racing for all the stage wins. And then the speed of that 19 car shows that they can, they will and can be in position for the win as well. So I say go out and go, go for the jugular because it can only help in those next few rounds, you know, as we're always looking toward Talladega, what have you. I agree. Just between this upcoming weekend and the Roval race, I mean, just let's remember, he took the white flag last year as the leader. Um, but this whole first round, now with the Las Vegas win in his pocket, really caters to what Martin Truex and Cole Pern do very well. Why not go for the sweep? Yeah, and we showed it last week on Race Hub for the Las Vegas Media Day preview. Um, just the ebbs and flows for Martin Truex Jr. You know what I mean? Like he could have some valleys where he doesn't have a win for a while, but then he has this peak stretch where it's four wins, I think, in like eight races or ten races. I mean, it, when they hit it and they go on a streak, uh, they, they can crank off some checkered flags. And in the middle of the playoff, that means everything. And I would not be surprised if he did it uh, at Richmond because we know he's good at the Roval as well. Now, David, Martin Truex Jr. is on one side. There were a lot of drivers that had trouble in Las Vegas, a lot of playoff drivers that kind of put themselves in a hole. So with the, the Roval looming, you know, that, that's something of a wild card. Who needs a good run? Who needs to maximize their potential, if you will, at Richmond to really dig themselves out of a hole so the Roval may not mean as much? Who are you thinking? So I spent some time looking at this. Uh, surprisingly, Kurt Busch, Clint Boyer, and Eric Jones – with uh, average finishes of 8.2, 11.9, and 12.7, respectively, across the last 10 road course races, are pretty adept at road course uh, driving. Ryan Newman uh, stood out as maybe being the weakest one with a 16.5 place average. But the problem is that the Roval could devolve into a circus, in which case Richmond offers this last chance to potentially control your own destiny. As such, this doesn't strike me as a race in which these guys can afford to take big swings that might not pan out. I'll be honest, I don't really know what those big swings would be. Richmond is pretty straightforward, but I'm thinking something along the lines of two tires or no tires late uh, as a, a final Hail Mary to salvage a, a finish. But the more I consider these drivers that might fall on the borderline, I don't see a reason for panic. I'm sure that will be drummed up on the race telecast. And I do think uh, what does exist, though, is uh, two guys, Eric Amarola, William Byron, who don't have the road course records some of these other guys do. Uh, they could stand to pad the cushion that they already have after Las Vegas. But again, it goes back to this being the one race in this round that you can't really fake. There's no way to strategize enough so that it covers your blemishes. Richmond is just not that kind of track. I think we're going to see a straightforward race uh, played by all the playoff participants. Yeah, and if that happens, that where I'm going with this is uh, that's where I think Clint Boyer needs to capitalize while in Richmond, right? Especially if the Roval turns into some circus or, or just a crazy wild card. 
because Clint Boyer, pound for pound, central speed, David, the 12th fastest car on the year, but that jumps to sixth. He has the sixth fastest car, the 14 car, when it comes to the short tracks, and he's got a decent record at Richmond. So, you know, the logic I'm trying to use is when you have all the when, – when, when things are in your favor going to a short track like Richmond, I think a driver like Clint Boyer needs to capitalize. Uh, and play to his strengths and get the finish he really deserves at Richmond, especially coming off a bad Las Vegas. I'll throw Ryan Newman in there as well. Uh, top 10 there in the spring. Ryan Newman keeps top 10 in them to death, <laughs> if that's a verb, if you will. Uh, Las Vegas, no stage points, but still ends up with a top 10. Uh, improved speed when you look at, you know, in terms of overall speed but versus short track speed. Uh, the six team moves up a little bit on the speed charts. So two situations where I think you have to maximize what you have going for you going into the race like Richmond and get the finish you deserve before we hit the Roval. I think Clint Boyer and Ryan Newman are two drivers that have to take advantage of that. I would agree. And especially so for Boyer, uh, his short track record is pretty spectacular. Actually, if you mapped out his pathway to Homestead, it almost has to happen where he achieves good finishes at Richmond and at Martinsville uh, in the third round. But if uh, this first one, Richmond, doesn't happen, then Martinsville is kind of pointless, right? So he he does need to play to his strength, and we sort of expect a good finish because he's so good at short tracks. If he doesn't achieve that, then yeah, he could be in for a world of hurt come Roval time. Yeah, I mean that this is this is a weekend where he does need it to go well because Vegas after winning the pole kind of went south. All right, it should be interesting night race in Richmond in the playoff. What do we want to see at Richmond, David? My favorite question of the week. What do you want to see? Well, your uh, your buddy Bob Hawker has captured Kyle Busch going off at the end of uh, the race in Las Vegas, and uh, in in that uh, spat he mentioned. Can't pass at Richmond, and I regret to inform our listeners that there might be some truth to that. Uh, I would like to see good passers be rewarded this weekend because in the spring race, three of the top four finishers ended the race with negative surplus pass differential. We mentioned Clint Boyer earlier. He was incredibly efficient at Richmond with a plus 8.4% surplus passing value, but even that yielded only five positions beyond the expectation. That's not very exciting, is it? <laughs> so I'd like to see passing as a possibility. Uh, I think Denny Hamlin was the showstopper in the spring. He started from the rear of the field. He finished fifth. He scored 16 positions beyond expectation, but wasn't really ever in the mix for the win. Fifth place was his highest position achieved that night. I'm purely a spectator here, but I'd prefer to see a driver take this one while exceeding what is expected of him and his car. To me, that is something that the playoffs are supposed to offer. All right, good one there. That's my thinking with your head. I'm going with the heart here, David, because I just want to bump and run. Old school style. Give me some little old school Richmond bump and run. Maybe if it's hard to pass, maybe we get it. But, you know, I think of Richmond and I think of, uh, you know, Rusty turned Gordon once there at Richmond. So I remember that, obviously. Uh, Carl Edwards a few years ago moved Kyle Busch out of the way on the final lap. Didn't spin him, but a good old bump and run uh, between teammates. That That's the Richmond that uh, I enjoy. And look, if, if it's going to be trouble passing, at least they can knock each other out of the way. 
Maybe I'm just one for chaos. I'm sorry, but I would love to see a bump and run. Why not some excitement for this playoff? We, we know that the fuel is there for it because these wins mean so much. Why not bump someone out of the way? It should be good. Would you prefer Richmond to be the cutoff race of this round? Because of of the two, the Roval is more of a wild card. I think Richmond offers something a little bit more concrete. But would you ratchet up the drama uh, if this were the third and final race of the round? I don't think so, only because look at what the drivers are saying. I don't know how much passing we will see Saturday night. Therefore, uh, the Roval last year had plenty of drama. So I know it's maybe a recency bias, but I'm going to go with the Roval in terms of the drama. Uh, remember that last lap that Kyle Larson had last year to get through and advance. So the Roval, we'll talk about it next week, I'm sure, obviously. But plenty of drama. So I, I like Richmond where it is. I, I like how the first round sets up with the mile and a half, the short track, and the road course. I don't mind it. Another good episode of Positive Regression. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. We love hearing your feedback, and getting that rating or review, it does help the podcast gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word also helps, so please tell your friends. Uh, We promise we'll try to teach you, and and you'll learn something. Little nuggets, I say every week, David. Nuggets, plenty of nuggets of stuff listening to the podcast, so tell your friends. If you have questions, we want to answer them on this podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at PosRegPog, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always busy. What are you working on? This week on The Athletic, I broke down Martin Turex's Las Vegas race, uh, just like I did here, but I also broke down his 2018 playoff performance. The subject of him going winless in those playoffs resurfaced last weekend, but things were actually kind of great despite him going winless, and I addressed why. Also, this week on motorsportsanalytics.com, I'm previewing the Xfinity Series playoffs that will begin this weekend in Richmond. There will be a comprehensive playoff preview posted by the time you're listening to this. Also, I'll be posting a cheat sheet, a statistical preview of every Xfinity playoff race uh, beginning this weekend. So do check all of that out. Good work as always. And if you missed it, David did a really good article on The Athletic about crew chiefs in the Cup Series and the upcoming playoffs. So I encourage you to check that one out. I've got sort of a quiet week. Unfortunately, there is a sort of a, a downtime uh, now that the first round of the playoffs are over for the Truck Series. Interesting uh, stuff over there in terms of who advanced, who did not, but we have to wait a little bit before we get to Talladega for the next round. So I'll have a quiet weekend, but make sure you keep it on FS1. Watch Race Up. Check out my Twitter account. Did a good good stuff with Brad Kozlowski after the Las Vegas race. Remember, they at the end of Stage 2, they had their hood up, yet they came back, persevered, and still finished third. So a great start to the uh, playoffs for Brad Kozlowski. That interview is up on my Twitter account, at Alan Kavana. But make sure you just keep it on the Fox family and watch all the NASCAR race of that you can. And thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to episode 35 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.
If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today at our award-winning and fully accredited treatment centers on the Eastern Shore and in Southern Maryland, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.